From the ACLU, this is At Liberty, a podcast about the civil rights and civil liberties questions of our time. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host for this episode. Recently, we've seen a reckoning in the culinary world around the whitewashing and co-opting of ethnic food. The industry has long been controlled by a certain few who've authored and then profited from the foods we eat and the stories we share. But the tide is turning, and today's guest is part of that movement. You've likely seen her tasting and critiquing some of the best chefs in the U.S. on Top Chef, sharing her favorite recipes across social media, and advocating for immigrants' rights and women's rights. Yes, we're talking about Padma Lakshmi. Padma has a long list of accomplishments. She sits on the James Beard Leadership Committee, is an Emmy-nominated host and executive producer, a New York Times bestselling author, founded the Endometriosis Foundation, and is an ACLU Artist Ambassador for Women's Rights and Immigrants' Rights. And if that wasn't enough, she's joining us today to talk about her new Hulu show, Taste the Nation, where she breaks down important questions about the influence of immigration on American food and culture. Padma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here, Molly. First, I want to talk about your series. It's a 10-part series on Hulu where you travel exploring the foods of America, but not foods that are originally of America. They are anything from Mexican food in El Paso, beer and schnitzel in Milwaukee, Indian food in Jackson Heights. Um, But between the the sort of beer drinking and dosa eating, the show really tackles some complicated issues around the landscape of the American identity and the immigrant experience. And I'm really curious about where the idea for the show was seated. Um, What was the sort of backdrop against which it came to be? Well, it's interesting. I've been doing press for the new show, obviously, and your ears should be ringing because I mention the ACLU in almost every interview I do because the genesis for this idea was actually born out of my work for the ACLU. I am an immigrant, so this issue is very close to my heart. I also do some stuff for them and women's health and women's reproductive health and women's rights. But It was really the immigration piece that spoke to me. And it is my belief anyhow that the most exciting part of the culinary landscape in America is happening in these immigrant enclaves. Food is different from many other sectors whereby things actually trickle up rather than trickle down. And, you know, we throw out this term new American cuisine. But what new American cuisine usually means is, you know, French-centric food that is made by white males with bells and flourishes from different ethnic influences without ever really giving credit to those influences and just kind of cherry-picking those ingredients from za'atar to turmeric to Berber spice or, you know, chipotle. So I wanted to give these communities a platform to speak about their communities themselves because there was so much rhetoric coming out of Washington for political gain about, you know, who immigrants are and what they were bringing into this country. And I befriended one of the attorneys at the ACLU, Lee Gallant, and he gave me quite a comprehensive education for a layperson on what was going on. And the more I learned, the more I was appalled that immigrants were being vilified in this way. 
Food is the language that people are used to hearing me speak. And so we thought that it would also be a good gateway to get me into these communities. And it would be a neutral subject where I could speak to these participants and, and get to know them through their food. But it is a very political show. It does touch on a lot of immigration issues that I've been thinking about and have been working on with the ACLU. So I guess I have to thank you guys for inspiring this series. Yeah, and actually one of the points you brought up that it's a very political show, and one of the things that you said you were reacting to is the vilification of immigrants. And one of the themes of the show is sort of addressing where that comes from. One of the pieces that you pick up is that a lot of it is rooted in fear, that fear is the root of a lot of where some of the immigration policies come from and where their support comes from. It seems like food is sort of almost food is protest. Food is one of the ways that we can sort of bridge that fear. It's sort of our our most open point, our stomachs. And I'm curious if you thought about that in the show of how immigration and fear are sort of linked and how food can be sort of a, a salve on that in some ways. Well, food and immigration specifically is linked because usually, you know, when immigrants or refugees come into this country, they may not know the language well, they may not have certifications, they may be educated in their own country, but they may need to get certifications or licenses that take time. And so a lot of people resort to cooking their food because it's what they know best and it's what they have to offer right off the bat, right? So so it is a vehicle for people to earn a living, specifically immigrants. That's why um, so many of the mom and pop restaurants in this country are immigrant family owned. And I thought also that the most delicious food was coming out of there. But for me, food is a universal topic. You don't have to be a food professional to have really fully formed opinions about food. And in a very real direct way, a few years ago, I remember when Congress was supposed to vote and discuss the child separation or whatever it was, and Ted Cruz was for some of this stuff that was kind of ludicrous, even though he's from Texas. And then there was a news story about how he was um, heckled while he was eating at a Mexican restaurant. And I thought that was great because how dare he enjoy Mexican food without thinking about the people who make that food? And maybe his response to that would be, well, you know, I'm all for legal immigration, which is what they always say. But, you know, this administration has diminished the amount of refugees we allow into the country. They are changing and tightening laws left and right. So what is legal may not necessarily be humane or moral. Mm -hmm. And just for review for people who may not remember, because there have been so many policies against immigrants of late, family separation was the policy um, originated with Jeff Sessions, where basically families were separated at the border under the pretense of checking to make sure that it was the parent and that the, the children were safe, but truly as it came out, it more of a deterrent. Totally. And they admit that it's a deterrent. And it's a horrible deterrent because what kind of choice is that for a parent? If a parent puts their child in a raft, it's because the land they are standing on is less safe. And that gives you an idea of the desperation. 
It also is important to note that many of the refugees have been created as a result of American foreign policy, you know, which is the irony of this whole thing. And a couple of people have brought that up. And, you know, there was only so much I could bite off, literally and figuratively, um, in this series. But I would love to explore that more in season two. I also think, you know, we are a country that enjoys a very international menu of foods. If you look at what Americans are eating and ordering, it's not meatloaf, you know, it, it's enchiladas and sushi and shawarma. Yeah. It's interesting. The owner of the famed taco joint in El Paso actually brings up one of the points that you just raised where, and this is um, for context, this is an owner who says that he's a Trump supporter, he's a diehard Republican, but also speaks really endearingly of his majority from Mexico staff. And he says during the interview, you know, he talks about, you know, it doesn't matter how high you build the wall, people still need to eat. They will still come. This is not a deterrent. People will always they find will a way. They will climb over whatever wall you build. Right. That's true. Right. And he was interesting because he brought up a contradiction that you raise in the show in more ways than one. You actually bring up in talking actually to the owner of Mishtil in San Antonio, Rico Torres, I think you said, you don't know Americans who don't like tacos, but you do know Americans who harbor either hate or resentment towards immigrants. How do you reconcile that contradiction? Like, how did you think about it while you were producing the show? It's so evident in so many situations, you know, for me, in and out of the show, and for me, it was important just to show the complexity of the issues of immigration. It was hard for me because every bone in my body wanted to say, that's so hypocritical. How can you support a person who's making life so hard for the very people you rely on to run your establishment and who you say are like family? But if I had done that at that moment, if mm -hmm. I had talked at him or tried to convince him, rather than listen to him, I would have gotten much less out of him. And for me on this show, you know, my, my motivation for doing this show is to try and encourage people who are against immigration to look a little deeper at the faces and lives behind the policies they're supporting or not supporting. This show is not designed for people who support the ACLU. They're not designed for people who think like me. It's really designed for, in, I mean, in my design, I thought I am doing it for people who are skeptical of immigration and are really not very open to it. And I hope that this humanizes the whole issue much more. At the same time, I wanted from a food, professional food person to give a platform for the people who originate this cuisine in our country that we so love and have made a part of our daily lives to speak about their own food. I wanted to go to the source. And for many of these people, it's the first time that they've really spoken to a mainstream audience about yeah. their food like this. I mean, you know, Rico Torres, he's been featured a bunch in Food and Wine right. and stuff, and, and maybe Eric Ramirez, too, of the Llama Inn in the Peruvian episode. But other than those two, you know, very high-end chefs, most of these people that I go to are just average people, you know? Mm -hmm. And 
like Rosa, who runs the dance studio. Mm. She's so compelling in the Peruvian episode. And she says so beautifully, you know, I tell the kids that come here, you have to try your hardest and you don't have to be ashamed that you are a Peruvian immigrant. You have to make yourself the best version of yourself you can and give that to this country Mm. and make the country better by making yourself better. And, you know, I had tears in my eyes because that's such a nice statement. Yeah. Um, and also there, like the Thai episode, which is, you know, very female forward on purpose, is also important to me because you have those three war brides who are friends for, you know, like 40 years. And they're talking about how when they first moved here, how their in-laws were so welcoming to them. You know, Ladim mm-hmm. talks about how she was 11 years senior to her husband with four kids as a divorcee. And yet her mother-in-law welcomed her with open arms, treated her like the daughter she never had, and was so kind to her because that allowed me to focus on the legacy that we do have in America of being welcoming to foreigners and allowing anybody to work hard and settle here and have an equal shot at whatever the American dream is. I mean, I don't even know if the American dream exists anymore, but if it does exist, then immigrants are a huge part of that experience. Yeah. And, you know, another huge theme of the show is assimilation. And this notion, somebody in the show says, take the best bits of everyone that is America. You know, it's our hot dogs and hamburgers, the street cart in Washington Square Park, which, according to your Twitter feed, is just reopened for anyone who's interested in some crispy doses. And I'm sort of wondering, you address assimilation from two perspectives. One is the gain. Why is this kind of assimilation like hot dogs and understanding and also like this process of incorporation so important to the American identity? It is the basis of American identity. I mean, I say things like, you know, it contributes and it evolves the American identity. The American identity is actually a blend of different identities spun into something uniquely American. I mean, you know, earlier in your intro, you said, you know, looking at foods that weren't always here, but we also go to indigenous communities because if I'm going to talk about American food, I wanted to see what was actually here. Like what was the real American food of the Americas before the white Western European colonizer Mm -hmm. came and sort of, contaminated it with flour, with lard, all this stuff. So, I mean, like, Native Americans don't have the practice of eating cattle or pork. They Mm -hmm. eat elk and antelope. I mean, depending on, obviously, it's a vast country with diverse natural resources. So you're eating something different in Florida than you are in Arizona, right, Mm -hmm. if you're a Native American But I wanted to look at that, too, because that is the real, that's what we started with. And the common thing there is they're eating the three sisters, which is corn, which is a succotash kind of, of corn, squash, and beans. Mm -hmm. And so also, I don't think they had any dairy. So that all these things, and they also, at least the Apache tribe and the San Carlos Reservation that I went to, they They really didn't add a lot of salt or any salt to their food. And honestly, the food was fine. I was so scared about eating this pack rat that I had, um, and I've eaten a lot of funky stuff, but I had a little tiny 
thing of salt and pepper that I had stolen off of my tray on the plane because I I thought if it's really bad, I can just salt it to death. But it didn't need it. It just had a sumac and honey glaze and it was delicious. So I'm also curious, you know, this is assimilation is in some ways just who we are as America. That's the history. Where do you draw the line between assimilation or where does it become appropriation? How do you sort of reconcile those two? That yes, this is a positive part of our identity, but there's also some pitfalls. This show is about allowing assimilation while still giving credit and Mm. letting those originators of those foods speak about the food themselves. So there's been a lot of talk about that in food media. My thing is, it's not that you can't use Berber or Arissa in your food. Of course you can, and you don't have to give a dissertation about where those foods come from. But honestly, if you're in media and you're writing for a newspaper or a magazine or a TV show, the onus is upon you to just say two or three sentences at the top in a head note of a recipe or a piece to camera and say, I'm using turmeric in this stew. And turmeric is something that is 5,000 years old and it belongs to Ayurvedic food and Hindu culture. And it comes from India. It's also used X, Y, and Z. But today we're using it in meatloaf, right? Right. So thereby you just give credit where credit is due. Just Mm. like in any other academic paper or serious news article, you would have footnotes or, you know, you would have citations. Mm -hmm. I'm asking just for citations by Caucasian writers when they do that, because that's, you know, they should do that. Mm -hmm. That is one way of how our culture gets erased left and right. Like, for instance, we think of the banjo as this all-American instrument. Mm. It was brought here by African enslaved people. Mm. And many people don't know that. Same thing with sesame seeds. And maybe if there were more credit, more attribution, there would be more gratitude for the diversity that we thrive off of and depend on in some ways. Yeah, maybe. And that is my gamble. Mm. My gamble is that if I can entertain and entice people with the program to look a little deeper, maybe I can give them some facts or tidbits that they didn't know and give them a history lesson or an education. You know, a lot of this stuff you see on the show is the stuff that I wish I had learned about in school. And actually, the the notion of giving credit is a great pivot to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is authorship. You are the creator of Taste the Nation. You're the author of cookbooks and a spice encyclopedia. You're an executive producer of Top Chef. How do you think about authorship around the narratives of food? I mean, there's there's a lot going on right now around discussions, broader discussions about authorship and also structural racism. For example, there's the recent Bon Appetit allegations of racism where the, the publication's now former editor Adam Rappaport resigned after racist photos of him surfaced and Stafford spoke out about more ongoing problems. Do you think authorship and claiming the benefits around that authorship can play a role in sort of upending some of the embedded inequities in this industry? And obviously industry, I mean restaurant industry, publishing industry, all the things that surround the profits of food. Yes, I do. In a nutshell, I think that when you give credit where credit is due, 
then people know where the expertise and information is coming from, and there's an expectation of equal compensation. What was most egregious to me in the Bon Appetit saga was not some stupid picture of him, you know, dressed up as a stereotypical Puerto Rican or whatever. It was the pay discrepancy for the same work Mm -hmm. so that, you know, editors who were white were being paid for those videos Mm -hmm. and Bon Appetit people who were of color were asked to do them too and were not compensated. Like, I get that there's a sliding scale due to position and experience, yada, 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 but come on, you know, that's illegal, I think, or should be. I don't know. I'd have to ask the ACLU, I guess. But, I mean, that to me was astounding. And so I think things like this happen all the time because it is modern day. I call it the Columbusization of food. It's modern day colonialism where, you know, you are born and breathe and drink every message that is given to you when you live in this society by media, by your parents, by your school, by walking down the street or the television, that if you're, this is a white world we live in. I'm a brown woman working in a white male industry. The food, professional food industry is the most male-dominated profession. Only the military is more male-dominated. There are gender issues, there are racial issues abound. And so there's this predisposed attitude of, well, I can just take that and make it into, you know, take it and use it for my purposes. And you can. I believe in cross-pollinization. I've built my career and my cookbooks on it. But the how? But you have to just give credit. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And it would be really nice that if we had a story about Vietnamese food, that it was written by a Vietnamese author. There are Vietnamese authors in this country who have won national book awards. There are fabulous Vietnamese writers. Call them, ask them for their food memory. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. And so it, it requires really a level of empathy that white people aren't conditioned to automatically exercise. Because mm-hmm. they have never had to. And they've been rewarded for not. I mean, yeah, there's a, there are many famous executive chefs out there with cookbooks and all kinds empires. of profit-making things. Empires, yeah, who have profited off of fusion cuisine, but with no credit. Yeah. And most of them are tasting these spices because their line cooks have brought it in when they're making family meal. because. Yes. Everyone has to make family meal for everyone that works in the restaurant before service opens. Mm -hmm. And so you always want to do a good job when you make family meal because Mm -hmm. you're kind of showing off to your colleagues. So those chefs, those African chefs, those Bangladeshi chefs, those Mexican line cooks or whatever will bring in stuff from home. And then the chef will taste it and all of a sudden you'll see seared scallops with a dashi broth. And, you know... Berber spice. Like, and it's wonderful. That's great. I believe in globalism. I believe in a global pantry. I just would rather, I would love to hear about those things firsthand from other voices Mm -hmm. than the same translators and interpreters we've had forever. And it's like Americans almost need a white person to translate it for them. And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it becomes the rage. And I just think, that those days should be over by now. Padma, as we draw to an end, I sort of wanted to loop back to your beginning. 
because I think it's deeply informative of so much of what we've talked about. You immigrated to the United States when you were four from India. Mm -hmm. um, and you show us a picture of yourself at the beginning of every episode of the show as a young girl. How did your beginning lead to the many roles you hold as an author, a producer, a host, uh, an activist, and how you sort of own them? Well, I mean, look, it's taken me a really long time to get to do my own material on TV. The reason I like to write is because there's no go-between. Mm -hmm. TV is a collaborative project, so are films. Books, on the other hand, are just you and the page or you and the computer screen. And so I like that about writing. And I am a lover of books, you know, so... So that's what leads me to writing. And I think whenever you are a person who lives in a culture that is not the culture of your birth, you occupy this third space. Occupying that third space gives you a better perspective because your worldview is broader. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to use the education that I've garnered by occupying, having one foot in two cultures in my work, which is where, you know, the Spice Encyclopedia comes from. And, you know, along the way in my career as a model, also stopping in different countries on my way to and from India to visit grandparents has also informed my palate and my interests. And so I have always been interested in, in other cuisines. And so that's what informs my work, really. Mm. My work with the ACLU really happened organically. Um, I wouldn't have said five years ago that I was a very <laughs> political person. I mean, I did, you know, start the Women's Health Foundation because I found there was a lot of misogyny when it comes to women's reproductive health and in medicine in general, mm -hmm. um, even by we very well-meaning liberal people, there is, you know, unconscious gender bias. And that is very true in healthcare. And that's why we started the Endometriosis Foundation of America. And, you know, I started to slowly, slowly doing that work for 10 years, sort of set the stage for me to then graduate to work with the ACLU, because I was incensed that a lot of lawmakers would curtail access to reproductive health or not offer birth control as part of insurance when, you know, Viagra is covered by insurance. And by the way, like women use birth control for other things besides stopping pregnancy. They mm -hmm. use it, for example, for endometriosis treatment. Yeah, yeah and, and footnote, the Supreme Court is still about to decide around birth control and access. So we're staying tuned yeah. to that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I've come to my advocacy work always through the channels of what I know and what I see wrong in my own life or the life of my peers. I've come to all of my advocacy through personal experience mm. because I'm, you know, I'm not a human rights lawyer. I'm not a hospital administrator. So, you know, I have to rely on my own experience as a lay person to inform my opinions. And you have a platform that's valuable. Honestly, I kind of got sick of self-referring. Every time I would go to a ACLU rally or make a keynote address, like we did our first town hall in, in Miami. And so that's what made me interested in other immigrant stories. You know, mm. I needed new material for my ACLU stuff. And, well, and we're very appreciative. Thank you. 
Thank so you. So that's how the show came about. Anyway, I'm really oh. proud of Taste the Nation, and I love the origin story of it. So I'm very well, pleased to have talked to It's an amazing today. show, and in some ways, in so many ways, it's so aptly timed, both for the conversations, the political conversations about identity and the American identity, but also just because it's so nice to get out of your house and taste different things vicariously. Padma, we have a couple, like, super rapid-fire questions that have, like, one-word answers. Favorite dish you ate on Taste the Nation? Tacos at Ileni, made with homemade tortillas. Favorite quarantine food? (sighs) Nachos at midnight. (laughs) Best kitchen utensil you cannot live without? My immersion blender. Best cooking tip for the home chef? Always chop all your vegetables before you start a recipe. That way you have everything ready, just like a professional chef, and you won't get as flustered or delayed in your cooking process. Mise en place. I second that. Um, What's your favorite food store in New York City? Calustian's. We can end there. That's... Oh, we'll always end on Clusians. Um, yeah. <laughs> Padma, thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Nice to speak with you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. Stay strong.